Open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 11, beloved. And, and we're going to read this morning from verses 11 through 24. And I just want to, I'm going to tell you from the outset that this, this is a difficult text, okay? It is. And so you're going to need to be on your A game this morning. You're going to need to focus. You're going to need to lean in and listen. Um, you know, pay close attention so you don't get lost in the weeds, so that you get, so you receive, you know, the word of God well this morning. And, and let me just say this, you know, some texts, just lend themselves to preaching. You know, when you read them, you're like, oh, this is going to be easy to preach, right? And then there are those that are in an entirely different category. This text is in that entirely different category. It's not an easy one to preach, okay? So pray for me that I'll be clear and I'll be, you know, um, faithful and that that you'll understand um, this text well this morning as we work our way through it. So let's pray and then we'll read this. Father, you know, we confess to you the truth that, that we agree wholeheartedly that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And Father, we need your word. We need your word every single day. We need you, Lord God, renewing our minds, and we need you taking your word and and, and, and planting it deeply in our hearts and souls. And Father, we need your word because your word is life. Your word is life. And it's true of the easier texts to understand and the more difficult ones. And so, Lord, as we, as we dig into this text this morning, we're praying that you would manifest your presence with us and that you would teach us and train us by your Holy Spirit. That, Father, you would fill me with the Spirit of God and that you would give me unction, Lord God, to preach and to teach this text rightly, that you would give to the congregation a heart to receive it, And that, Lord God, the work that you would do through it, like your purpose in this text, would be accomplished in us. That, Lord, it would would make us to behold and, and to hold in proper tension the kindness and the severity of God. That, Lord, it would make us to recognize that there's nothing in which we have to be proud that, Lord, there's nothing in us that, that should fill us with arrogance or self-righteousness or self-exaltation because our salvation is entirely of your grace. I pray, Lord, that you would use this word in the way that you desire to do so, in the way that pleases you, in the purpose, for the purpose for which you have given it to us. So, Lord God, just meet with us as we read your word today. Bless us as we, as we study it. And Lord, may the preaching of your word be pleasing in your eyes. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's read from Romans chapter 11. And we'll begin in, in verse 11 and we'll read again through verse 24. So Paul writes and he says, So I ask, and he's speaking of the, of the Israelites, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? 
If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? You know, beloved, when we look at this text this morning, we might be tempted to ask ourselves, why is it that Paul spends so much time talking to, you know, a predominantly Gentile church, the Roman church, about you know, this whole situation with the Israelites. Why, if this Roman church is predominantly Gentile, why spend so much time talking about the staggering unbelief of the Jews? Like, aren't there more important things to talk about, right? How exactly do we make this text relevant to us, right? Well, here's the good news. The good news, the short answer is, we don't have to make this text relevant to us. It already is relevant by, by virtue of the fact that it's the Word of God, right? But let me just for a moment offer a little more. I've become convinced, beloved, as we look at our culture, as we look at, you know, the the situation in our nation today, I've become convinced that, that, that humanity and especially our society is awash in a sea of triviality. You know what I mean? In other words, so much of our lives have been reduced to a level of triviality and inconsequence and, and insignificance in frivolity. In fact, the great issues of life, the issues of life that used to really grip mankind, stuff like, you know, who are we and why are we here? And who is God? And who is Christ? And what's truth? And what is good? And what's actually virtuous? And what is decent and upright? And what is just? What's righteous? What exactly is love? What constitutes a good life? Those things that really matter have really been relegated to a level of triviality. And trivial things that really are unimportant have been elevated to a place of great significance. I watched this week on the news how some of the news guys were breathlessly talking about, you know, the, 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 the real concern that aliens exist and there's a mothership and all this other stuff. I was sitting there thinking to myself, if aliens really do exist, that's super bad news for us. And you know why? We couldn't even take down a Chinese spy balloon. We ought to be terrified if, if aliens exist. 
we, we just, we seem to be gripped by the unimportant. And we, we, we spend all of our energies there, you know? And the only cure for, cure for triviality is to be overawed and astounded and arrested by the infinite and invincible sovereignty and holiness and grace and justice and wisdom and power and majesty of Almighty God. You want a quick cure for triviality? Come face to face with the glory of the living God. That's how things get real quick. And that's what this text does for us this morning. That's why these words from Paul are really so important. That's why they're very relevant to us today. Because what we need more than anything else is a vision of God as He is. The God who is the sovereign King of glory. The God who does all things according to the counsel of His will. The God whose wisdom far exceeds our own. The God who does what He does simply because He's God. And that's why we need this text. We need this picture of the sovereign king of glory, and it's what we have in this text that is before us. In fact, Paul begins this, this whole section with a question as he unfolds God's sovereignty over redemptive history. He begins with a question as he then begins to unfold God's sovereignty over redemptive history. And before I go on, let me just say a little something. When I say that, when I say God's sovereignty over redemptive history, I don't want you to misunderstand me. I don't want you to have the wrong idea. It's not as if God's sovereign rule only extends to his work regarding the salvation of sinners. Okay? That's not what I'm saying. God rules all of creation, right? He rules every human soul. He rules every nation, every event, everything that exists with perfect wisdom and providential power, right? He's sovereign over all the affairs of the earth. And in fact, all the affairs of the earth ultimately serve one intertwined purpose. And that one intertwined purpose is this. It's the revelation of God's glory in His redemption of His chosen people. And likewise, the revelation of His glory in His just judgment of those who remain in their sins and reject His glory. Okay? So Paul starts with this question. Look at it. So I asked, did they stumble? The Israelites stumble, the unbelieving Jews. Did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Now, that question that he's asking here is one that's a normal question, like that, that we would ask regard, you know, in, in, in light of everything that we've read already. And the question about the Jews, about these descendants of, of Abraham that stumbled over Christ and over the gospel, the question is, is God done with them now? Is God, like, done with Israel altogether? Like, are we going to see no more Jews being saved? Is, is God finished with that nation because of their hardness of heart? Is he, is he finished with his, with his ancient people now? And has he moved on entirely just to, you know, the Gentiles? Is he finished with those people? And Paul's answer is emphatic. It's by no means, right? By no means. No, God has not given up on Israel. He still has an elect people for himself in in Israel, a remnant of the whole of the nation that is yet to belong to him, a people that he will yet redeem. In fact, here's what Paul wants us to know. 
that all that's going on here with the Israelites rejecting, you know, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the gospel going to the Gentiles and the Gentiles being saved and all of that, what he wants us to understand is it's all working out exactly according to God's sovereign plan. This is all, this is exactly how God planned it. None of this stuff is a surprise. God is not scrambling to come up with a plan B in order to redeem some people out of this world. All of this is going exactly according to the way that God planned it. He says, you know, he says to them, you know, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, two things are going on, he says, according to God's sovereign plan of redemption. Two things are going on through Israel's sin and their rejection of the gospel. First of all, salvation is going to the elect Gentiles, to us. It's coming to us. We, we got to hear the gospel as a result of Israel rejecting it, right? And then the second thing is this, is that while God is at work saving Gentiles by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he's doing all of that to make the elect in Israel jealous and to draw them back to God through repentance and faith in Christ. And none of it should come as a surprise because it's all part of God's plan. In fact, remember what what Paul said back in Romans chapter 10, verses 19 and 20. Look at it. He says, Moses said, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold to say, as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me the prophecy that israel would reject the gospel and then gentiles would be saved we find it all the way back in the old testament right but not only that the lord jesus christ predicted the stubborn unbelief of the jews and the stumbling of israel and the salvation of the gentiles as a result he did he sure did over in Matthew 8, you probably remember this story. In Matthew chapter 8, you remember there's a centurion guy who has a servant that is sick and near death. And he comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he asks Jesus to heal his servant. And Jesus is like, sure, let's go to your house. I'll, I'll heal him right now, right? And the centurion was like, no, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. You just say the word and I know my servant will be healed. Because I'm a man under authority. I get how that works. You just say the word and I know that my my servant is going to be healed. And the Lord Jesus Christ's response to that was this. Starting in verse 10 of chapter 8 in Matthew. Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom, ethnic Israelites, will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. According to Jesus, Israel, by and large, would reject the gospel. And as a result, the gospel would go to the Gentiles. And it's exactly what we see played out before our very eyes in the book of Acts, isn't it? When you read the book of Acts, that's exactly what takes place. After the stoning of Stephen, you remember that? In fact, isn't it ironic that Paul is there consenting to and approving of Stephen's stoning and his death? After Stephen was stoned, 
to death. This great persecution of the church arose, not by the Romans, but by the Jews. And they drove the, the, the disciples, they scattered the disciples throughout Judea and Samaria. And then from then, from there, I mean, unto the ends of the earth. And then lo and behold, when Paul gets saved, right? And, and he goes around preaching his gospel, you know, throughout the known world. He first preaching in the synagogues of the cities to which he went before then preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. We see this thing playing out again. I can only mention a couple of places, but, but just a couple of them. Listen to what, what it says, for instance, in Acts chapter 13. The story of Antioch and Pisidia, right? Starting in verse 45. It says, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out loudly saying, spoke out boldly, I mean, saying, it was necessary, listen to this, it was necessary that the word of God be first spoken to you. But since you thrust it aside, And judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord is spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirring up persecution against Paul and and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. They took the gospel to the Jews first. The Jews rejected it. And then they took it to the Gentiles. One more place. Corinth. Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied... With the word. That's an interesting way to put it when he's preaching, right? Occupied with the word. Testifying to the Jews that Christ was, that, that, that Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and he said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. And Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and don't be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. I want you to take note of a few things here that are really important. There's, there's at least three doctrinal truths, probably more, that are perfectly illustrated here for us. First of all, we see this. We see that God has not totally rejected the Jews. Why? Because Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, was saved. Right? Then second, we see this fulfilling, this very thing going on, fulfilling the prophecy, Fulfilling prophecy because Gentiles are being saved as a result of the Jews' rejection of the gospel. And then third, yet again, we see displayed before our eyes the sovereignty of God in salvation, right? The saving and the choosing love of God in the words that God says in the vision to Paul. I have many in this city who are my people. 
not who will be, who are my people, who are mine. Now, here's what Paul's making plain here. He's making plain that the gospel going to the Gentiles is not only a result of Israel's rejection of Christ as Messiah and Lord, but it's also part of of God's divine design. Israel, because of their hardness of heart, has been for a time set aside so that through their trespass, salvation would come to the Gentiles. But that's not all. According to God's sovereign plan, Israel's rejection of Christ and the salvation of the Gentiles would in turn make the Jews jealous and would use, and God would use that jealousy to bring his elect from Israel to faith in the Messiah. That's the way God is going to do it. He's going to harden the hearts of the Israelites so that they reject in their unbelief, so that they reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then the gospel is going to go to the Gentiles. And then that's going to make the Israelites jealous. And then therefore they're going to desire to have the blessings that have been poured out on the Gentiles that were once promised to them that they've received, the Gentiles have, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to make them by their jealousy to turn to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's the thing. We might look at that and go, that is the most convoluted plan that I can possibly imagine. But guess what? You're not God. You don't get to make the plan. Right? Who are we to answer back to God? If this is how God wants to do it, God has a right to do it however he wants. Isn't that true? Moreover, you've used this strategy yourself. I have. When my kids were little and I wanted one of them to go to the store with me, all I would have to do is, let's say I went to Sam, like, hey, Sam, do you want to go to the store? Daddy, daddy's going to Walmart. You want to go? And if he was like, oh, well, I'm, I'm busy doing whatever. All I would have to do is go to Jake and say, Jake, do you want to go with daddy to Walmart? We'll get some fishing stuff, right? Jake would be like, yeah. And then we'd go to get, and Sam would be like, I want to go. I want to go, right? Because as soon as Jake said yes, Sam was made jealous. And then he, you know, responded. I got to take them both, right? This is exactly what God's doing here. He is, he is, by his sovereign plan, by his sovereign wisdom, he is bringing in the elect that belong to him, the ones that he's chosen before the foundation of the world, of the, of the Gentiles, through Israel's rejection of the gospel and the gospel going throughout the world. And then he's going to turn right around and use the Gentiles being saved as a means to incite jealousy in the hearts of the Jews, of the elect Israelites who are not yet saved. And he was going to make them see clearly their own sin and their separation from him and their need for the gracious salvation that is offered to the Gentiles and make them repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how they're going to be saved. In fact, Paul was so convinced of that Look at how he describes his own ministry here. In verse 13, he says, Now I'm, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, right? Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. He was the main spokesman to the Gentiles, right? He says, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. What is Paul saying? He saying, look, when I'm preaching... Look, I am earnestly devoted to preaching the gospel to you Gentiles. I'm preaching because I want to see you guys saved. I'm preaching to you the truth, right? But he's saying, I magnify and I glory in and I, I exult in this ministry that's been given to me. I exult in it because I know how God's using it. But what was the ministry that was given to Paul? Well, he says in Ephesians 3.8, To me, though I am the 
very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's his ministry. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That is the unsearchable riches of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He preached salvation in Christ in all of its parts, right? Grace and election, regeneration and calling, justification and sanctification and adoption and redemption and atonement and glorification and, and, and more, right? He preached the riches of Christ because he wanted to be gent- the Gentiles to be saved but also so that he would make his fellow Jews jealous in order that they too might be saved. In other words, Paul is like, the more intent I am on honoring God through my ministry to the Gentiles, that is the best way that I can contribute to the salvation of my kinsmen. Because if I preach to them the truth of Christ and they embrace the Lord Jesus Christ all their heart and soul and mind and strength and they come to faith in Him and they receive the blessings of salvation, it's going to make my brothers according to the flesh jealous. And some of them might in fact be saved. And when that happens, Paul says, what a blessing that is going to be. What a blessing that will be. So he says in verse 12, he says, now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will, they, will their full inclusion mean? He's saying, look, man, if, if Israel's trespass and failure to believe the gospel, if that means riches for the world, if that means, you know, riches for the elect Gentiles that were once outside the covenant of God, how much more then will the full inclusion of the elect Jews in the church mean? In other words, when all the the elect of Israel who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus and regenerated by the Holy Spirit and called out by the preaching of the gospel and saved through faith, when they're brought into the fold, it's going to be a cause for celebration and for rejoicing in the grace of God and, and in the fulfillment of His redemptive plan. It's going to be a cause for rejoicing unlike the world has ever seen. Because the plan of God, the grace of God, His plan of redemption will have come full circle. And all those they chose in eternity past will have been brought into the people of God. In fact, he amplifies it in verse 15. He says, if their, if their rejection means reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? In other words, here's what he's getting at. If their rejection, if the Israelites' rejection of the gospel meant the, the, the reconciliation of the elect Gentiles with God, then, then the elect Jews... Right? Being accepted by God through faith in Christ. That would be like a resurrection. And here's why. The Jews as a nation seemed completely dead to God, didn't they? They seemed utterly dead to God. They seemed like, you know, like they had no, they had no hope at all with God. They were dead in their sins, mired in their unbelief. And yet they were still going to find mercy. They'd be saved out of this mass of spiritual deadness, just like the Gentiles have been. Like, here's the, Israel was like the dry bones of Ezekiel, you know, 37. You remember that story? 
where, where Ezekiel is like, he's taken to a valley. He looks at this valley of dry bones and it's like, there's no skin on these things at all. They're just laying there. They're dead. And, and God says to him, what do you think, son of man? Will these bones live? And he gives the best answer. You alone know, God. I don't have a clue, right? And you remember what God says to him? Prophesy to these bones. Preach to these bones, right? And all of a sudden, this, this mass of people, this mass of, of dead bones, all of a sudden, it, it comes back together, right? Bone to bone and sinew to sinew and all this stuff. They're covered with flesh and yet they're still not life. And he says, prophesy to the wind, right? To the spirit. And the spirit comes and it breathes life into these bones and all of a sudden, they stand up a great, mighty army, right? Paul's saying that's what it's going to be like. When all the Israelites are brought into, the elect Israelites are brought into the fold of God, brought back from the dead by the preaching of the word of God that they'd once rejected and through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. Man, it was going to be remarkable. It would be like the resurrection of not just a dead body, but a dead, decayed body unto life. God knows what he's doing. God has a plan. He hasn't rejected these Israelites forever. Just like he didn't reject you Gentiles and all of your wretchedness and wickedness because of your filthy sins. God hasn't rejected them forever. There is yet hope for the unbelieving Jews. And that hope is found in the faithfulness of God to his word of promise. God is faithful to his words. That's the idea here. And, and, and we're going to look here how God is faithful to his promises. Look what he says in verse 16. Paul says, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now we might read that and say, wait a minute, what is going on? How, what, what are we talking about now? Are we, what? You know? Because it doesn't seem like this should follow, but it does. So what's Paul trying to say here? What does this mean? Well, first of all, you need to understand the identity of the dough and the root and of the lump and the branches, okay? So here's what we need to understand when we look at this. Nearly every commentator agrees that the dough and the root are, they, they represent Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, they represent the patriarchs. And the, the lump or the branches, they stand for the elect in Israel, the, the spiritual descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who have been and who will yet be saved through faith in the Messiah. Right? In fact, it becomes evident in Romans chapter 15 where Paul says, I tell you, Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's faithfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So the picture here is this, 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 this dough that's offered as first fruits and this root that, that then has these branches that, that, that root and that dough, those are the patriarchs, okay? And what he's doing in, in, in identifying this dough that's offered as first fruits and this root, what he's doing is he's emphasizing God's faithfulness to his promises that he first gave to Abraham and then confirmed to Isaac and Jacob. Okay, follow with me. What was the promise that God gave to Abraham? 
What was the promise that God spoke to Abraham? I mean, when we see, while we see, you know, um, signs and examples emerging in the Old Testament from Genesis 3 onward of the gospel, it's when we get to the life of Abraham that the promise of God really starts to take shape, doesn't it? So what was it that the Lord said to Abraham? Well, he said this, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Right? But that's not all he said. He also said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you. And may multiply you greatly. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Now, when you study that out, what you understand God to be saying to Abraham is this. is that he's establishing this covenant with Abraham entirely of his grace giving him a promise that he, Abraham, would be the spiritual father of a multitude and that he would be a blessing to all the nations. He would be a father of a multitude of spiritual offspring, not only in Israel, but also of the nations of the world. Okay? So in other words, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob... The patriarchs, they were the root of the true people of God. They were the dough, the first fruits of a people who would be holy to the Lord. And what Paul is making, the point that Paul is making is this. The first fruits, right? The first fruits were a pledge. The first fruits were the pledge of a final harvest, a greater harvest, okay? And the root was, you know, the promise of the, 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 the branches of a great tree. Okay? So the fact that you've got this dough that is the first fruits in this root leads you to understand, okay, there's going to be more. There's going to be, there's going to be fruit that comes from this dough and fruit that comes from this root. There's going to be something that comes from it, okay? And so Paul's saying, look, just as this first piece of the dough is the first fruits of a greater lump, and this root is the, is the, you know, the inception of some great branches of, of, of a tree that is yet to come, God is not finished showing grace to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's descendants. He's going to fill out the roster, in other words, okay? There's going to be more beat to be saved. And what had begun to be fulfilled in the Old Testament, through those who trusted in Yahweh and in the promised Messiah, is going to be continued to be, is going to continue to be fulfilled in the New Testament era, in the church age, as Jews come to faith in Christ. 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob stand as the promise that God still has a people among apostate Israel, a people that are chosen by grace, set apart and made holy to him, the lump or the branches that must be brought into the fold of God. And they're going to be. They're going to be. God's going to accomplish. He's going to complete his purposes, right? So that's the whole concept. That's the the truth and the the doctrine that needs to be understood. And now, Paul makes direct application to Gentile Christians. To you and to me. He makes a direct application. All the promises given to Abraham and, 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 and... the promise that God is going to complete those, the way that God is working in His divine plan of redemption, it all sets up the last part of this text, which is a warning to Gentiles. That's us. A warning against spiritual pride and arrogance. Look at what he says. Beginning in verse 17. He says, But if some of the branches were broken off, And you, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Now, I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees here, okay? When Paul references an olive tree here, the olive tree represents the people of God from every age, okay? It represents the people of God from every age, the family of God, created by God's grace and, 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 and Abraham and, 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 and God's covenant with him. He's the root of that tree. Abraham, God's covenant, that's the root of that tree. So in other words, here's what you're to understand. There's this olive tree of God's people that began way back with Abraham. That in the Old Testament was massively, predominantly Jewish. Right? They were Jewish people. They were Jewish believers who trusted in Yahweh. And now in this church age... This olive tree is now including Gentiles as well. Now Gentiles are are being grafted into this olive tree of God's people, okay? Everybody that is saved is saved only by believing and trusting in God just like Abraham, the root of this tree, did, right? Here's what what, what Paul is saying to the Gentiles and to us. He's saying... It is indeed true that some of these branches, they were broken off so that you, a wild olive shoot, think about that, you, a wild olive shoot who produced no fruit whatsoever, you, a wild olive shoot shoot that wasn't, you know, wasn't pruned, it wasn't tended to, nothing at all, you, so that you could be grafted into the family of God, you, who were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. You who had no hope who and who were without God in the world. You were chosen by God 
cut off from the wild olive vine and you were grafted into the olive tree of God's family by faith in Christ. But before you let that give you the big head, before you become puffed up with pride and arrogance toward the unbelieving branches that were broken off so that you would have a place, before you begin to look down your nose at them and think of yourselves more highly than you ought, you need to understand that should give you that God was the one that 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 broke you off that unfruitful tree and grafted you into this one. That ought to give you no reason to be arrogant toward the unbelieving branches. Because you don't have anything to boast in. You were idolaters. You suppressed the truth of God in ungodliness and unrighteousness. You weren't seeking God in any way. You had no claim on the promises that were given to Abraham. Yet in the grace of God, you were grafted by him into those promises given to Abraham, into the olive tree. But listen, you don't add anything to it. It's not like the olive tree is all of a sudden, you know, oh, look at us now. Because the Gentiles have been grafted in. You didn't add anything to it. Don't become arrogant because it's the root that supports you and not the other way around. You're not included now in the people of God because you're somehow inherently better than the unbelieving Jews in any way. It's not because of your great morality or religion or human wisdom. In reality, you lived in gross ignorance of God. You would have stayed that way. You, you, were, you had no idea. You lived in superstition and idolatry. You didn't even have divine revelation like the Jews. You got no right to look down your nose at these severed branches. There's no room for an arrogant or a haughty spirit toward them because, listen to me, there is no difference between you and them except for the grace of God. I think we need to remember something, beloved. I think we've forgotten it. The gospel didn't originate in America or in Europe. Jesus was not a white European. He was first and foremost the Jewish Messiah sent to the people of Israel, was he not? Jesus himself told the Samaritan woman, salvation is from where? Where? Salvation is from the Jews. We're not entitled in any way to receive the salvation that we've received. We have been grafted into the covenant of salvation that God made with Abraham for the blessing first of his spiritual offspring that are Jewish and then the nations. And that entirely is of his grace. We don't have a right It's not like we had some inherent right to belong to the family of God, to be grafted into the olive tree of the people of God. We need to remember that. Even if you were blessed to be born into a Christian family and you have lived your entire life in a faithful church, you understand that had absolutely nothing to do with you. It is entirely by God's grace that you've been born in the 20th century, now 21st, that you are in this time frame as a Gentile and therefore have had access to hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ 
ought to amaze you, ought to fill you with gratitude and thanksgiving. Thank God you weren't born in 720 in some backwoods marsh in Ireland where you didn't hear the gospel. You got nothing to be proud of. I have nothing to be proud of. There's nothing to be arrogant about. That I've heard the gospel and believed is entirely a work of God's grace. In fact, Paul continues. Look what he says here. He says, then you will say, right? Like, no, no, you're going to, because you want to hold on to your pride. He said, you're going to say this. Well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Paul's very direct, isn't he? He says plainly, those of national Israel that were broken off, those of, 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 of physical Israel that were broken off, those that were not of spiritual Israel, ethnically Jews, not believers in the Messiah, they were broken off specifically because of their unbelief. But you're standing with God. You're standing with God is entirely by faith in Christ. And remember what Paul has been teaching repeatedly. That faith is not of your own doing. It is what? A gift from God. If they were broken off because of their unbelief, and you stand only because of the faith that God has given to you, rather than that leading to pride, it ought to lead to godly fear. And you know why? Because God holds your eternal destiny in His hands. And if He had not given you grace to believe, you'd be on your way to hell. There's no reason for pride in you. Don't presume upon God's grace, is what Paul is saying. Treating God's grace with flippancy or complacency, living carelessly and recklessly. Instead, be gripped with awe and fear and reverence at Almighty God. Be amazed that you have received the grace of God. Realize what you could and would have been had not God chosen to be gracious to you. We ought to marvel at the richness of His grace to us, to the undeserving. And we ought to recoil at any thought of living in a way that dishonors Him. We ought to guard our hearts against sinning against His grace or falling away from His mercy. Christians have been the recipients of an astonishing love and kindness 
But we must not lose sight of God's holiness and His justice and His power and His authority. In fact, Peter says this. He says this to us. If you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Don't be flippant and over-casual with God. Yes, He's your Father, but He's also the judge. And reverence Him and Be in awe of Him and fear Him as you should. God is not our big genie in the sky. He's not our best bud. He's Almighty God. And we ought to fear Him with a proper godly fear. But then Paul gives us this warning. Look at it. He says, if God did not spare the natural branches, okay? Ethnic Jews. If he did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Notice, note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen and God's, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Now, I want to make sure that we understand this rightly. Because at first blush, when we read these words, it seems as if Paul is saying that a true Christian can lose his or her salvation, right? That you can believe and then unbelieve and be lost, right? But is that what Paul is telling us? Again, this is why it's important for us to take the Word of God in its totality and not just separate off even a section of verses and consider them apart from the entirety of the Word of God. Paul has already told us that a truly saved person cannot lose the salvation that God has given to them. Hasn't he? Hasn't he? Sure. Otherwise, it would make a mockery of the promise of Romans chapter 8, verses 29 through 30, where it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Right? And then he goes on to describe for us the security of the elect and how we can never, ever, you know, be separated from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Correct? So how are we to understand this warning? Well, I want you to remember this. Okay? All of the letters that are written to churches in the Word of God, they are written to churches that are what theologians call a corpus mixtum, which means it's a mixed group, a mixed body. In other words, in every one of those churches, whether it's church in Rome, the church in Ephesus, the church in Corinth, probably easier to see in Corinth, there is a mix of believers, those that are truly in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, and those who are merely professors of Christ and are Christians 
in name only. Okay? So when he's writing this, and that's the reason we have the warnings that we do in Scripture, when he's writing this, he's writing it to a mixed body. Now, we know that true saving faith is the gift of God that he gives to the elect when they're regenerated. Right? Right? And it's a faith in Christ and a trust in God that never stops believing. It may wax or wane. You know, it, it may, you know, it, it, it may, you know, weaken at times and falter. But God-given faith can never be extinguished. Isn't that true? And it never stops moving forward in obedience to the Word of God. God-given faith cannot fail. That's the testimony of Scripture. It perseveres to the end, right? In fact, Peter, again, described the true people of God as those who, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, those who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay? God is, is, is guarding them, exerting His power, holding fast to them by virtue of empowering their faith. Right? Faith that he gave to them. But how is it that saving faith perseveres? How is it that saving faith perseveres? And that's where this warning comes in. Right? Stay with me now, beloved. Warnings like this, here and and throughout the Bible, are one of the means that God uses to keep his people faithful and believing unto the end. Follow with me now. When Paul gives this warning, you know, don't be proud and arrogant, but fear the Lord and stand fast in faith and in the kindness of God, or you're going to be cut off like those who have fallen. When he gives that warning, the true people of God in the Roman church and in our own church today, they will hear those words with gravity. They'll take them seriously. They'll hear those divinely inspired words And because the Spirit of God dwells in them, they will respond to those words with seriousness. And they'll receive them into their souls. And it will cause them to stand in awe of God's greatness and His majesty and to rightly respond to those words. And they'll see the grace that they have received to believe in Christ unto salvation. They'll see... The grace has been given to them to to, to believe and it will motivate them to guard their hearts from unbelief, their lives from hypocrisy and falsehood and cause them to cling ever so fiercely to their God-given faith in Christ that protects them from straying and falling away. In other words, God gives A Spirit-inspired warning. The Spirit of God within a believer hears that warning and responds to that warning with gravity and with obedience. And therefore, their faith is strengthened and bolstered and energized and made more secure. On the flip side, Those who only have an outward attachment to Christ. Those who are just nominal Christians, right? Those who are the false professors, who are just pretenders, 
who are hangers-on, who are not vibrant, real branches, but are like dead, disconnected branches. They don't tremble. They don't hear these these warnings and tremble. They, they don't tremble at these warnings from God. They go in one ear and out the other. They hear them as being for somebody else and not for them. They don't consider these words or their own lives. They just pa- pass lightly over them as if they're not really that important. They don't consider these words for their own lives. And you know what that reveals? That reveals at best then only exceedingly infrequently. That reveals at best a heart that is in deep spiritual trouble, but most likely what it reveals is a spurious and a false faith in a soul that's lost. In other words, the warnings of the Word of God both serve to bolster and strengthen faith in those who are truly saved and to reveal those whose faith is not real and who were never truly saved. Thomas Schreiner captures it well when he says those who brush aside these warnings as unnecessary, concluding that they are protected from God's wrath, no matter how they behave or believe, are presuming upon God's grace. Again, anybody who ignores these warnings, and by ignoring them, falls away from the faith, and then is cut off from God's mercy, shows they never really were saved. They were tares among the wheat. They never really had real faith. They never really were part of the tree to begin with. Because divinely granted, God-given faith cannot fail. And one of the ways that God preserves and strengthens the faith that He has given to His elect to believe is through the proper response to His merciful and gracious warnings like this. The reason we have these warnings, beloved, is because one of the distinguishing marks of a true Christian is perseverance in the faith, isn't it? Isn't it? It's finishing the race. You see it all throughout the Scriptures. Over, for instance, in in, in the book of, of 1 Corinthians, when Paul is talking about the gospel, listen to what he says. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Right? The writer of Hebrews says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. The Lord Jesus Christ says the same kinds of things repeatedly. He says in Matthew 10 verse 22, for instance, You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. In John chapter 8, verse 31, he said to the Jews who believed in him, If you abide, remain in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you remain in the faith, if you remain in the truth, then you're my disciples. Not if you fall away. He says in John 15, If anyone does not abide in me, that is, remain in me, Perfectly applicable to the text we're looking at. If, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. One of the ways that God ensures that his people will persevere 
is through warning passages in the Scriptures. Now, these encouragements and commands to remain faithful. Understand, these warnings, okay, they're not meant to make Christians spiritually neurotic. They're not meant to make you, like, freak out and, 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 and you know, wring your hands that, that you might be lost every time you read them. That's not the point, okay? That's not the point. They're not intended to make us spiritually neurotic, but they are meant to make us serious and deliberate and sober-minded and focused as it regards our faith. And they are purposed by God. These warnings are, are purposed by God to keep us and preserve us in real saving faith as we receive them and respond to them by laying firmer hold on the Lord who has laid hold of us. In fact, I just want to see, I want you to see something here. I want to note something. I want us to take note of something. And apparently so does Paul. That's why he says, note then the kindness and the severity of God. I want to think about that for a moment together. Listen, we need to think about the kindness and the severity of God. The idea here of noting, taking note of the kindness and the severity of God, the idea is behold this, consider it, perceive it, look into the kindness and the severity of God. Think about His kindness. Think about His kindness, His redeeming love to those whom He has shown grace. And consider His severity, His wrath and His judgment to those who have fallen, those who remain in stubborn unbelief, the fact that He will in no wise clear the guilty. Think about it. He's telling us we need to keep these two aspects of God's character in proper tension. Now, why does he need to tell us that? It's because we often get them out of whack, don't we? Back in the Middle Ages, it was all about the severity of God. God was just waiting to whack you, right? In our age, it's all about the kindness of God. God is only and always kind, and there's no severity in the always kind God. And when you go to either one of those extremes... Well, it it wrecks your walk, doesn't it? Doesn't it? you got to keep these in proper tension, these two aspects of God's character. God is, yes, loving Savior. He's also exacting judge. And seeing Him in a proper light is vital to a healthy, persevering, and durable faith. And here's how. Here's how. Let me just give you, you know, three ways in which this helps. A proper understanding of both the kindness and the severity of God will cause us to treasure His kindness to us and treasure Him and to keep ourselves from the severity of God, that judgment that we rightly deserve. I mean, think about it. When we think about the kindness and the severity of God, we think about, I've been saved by grace, right? That's the kindness of God. The severity of God is, I deserve to be judged and go to hell. That's what I deserved. And that's what would have happened to me had God not been gracious to me. 
And when I think about that, when I really rightly consider the kindness and the severity of God, what that does is it deepens and it strengthens my thankfulness, my gratitude for the faith that God has given to me. And it keeps my faith from becoming trivial and insignificant, which is the plague of this age. Isn't it? It'll keep our faith in Christ from being superficial and, and casual rather than essential. I tell you what, the most important thing about any Christian, the most important thing about any Christian is his faith in Christ. When I'm thinking about the kindness and the severity of God, my faith in Christ won't be on a back burner in my life. I won't be casual and trivial about my approach to God. I'll be serious about my faith because I know that faith that God has given to me is the only thing that links me to Christ. And that linking me to Christ is what saves me. And I'm not going to play around with my faith and I'm not going to act as if it's an unimportant thing. It's going to be the defining factor of my life. For a lot of professing Christians, that's just not so. It's an aspect, but not the defining factor. When I consider the kindness and the severity of God, it drives me away from those things that bring dishonor to His name and bring contempt upon His grace. It drives us from sin into holiness and from carelessness in, a, in compartmentalized living into a whole life worship. It moves us not to presume upon His grace and mercy, but to make our calling and our election sure. Moreover, considering the kindness and the severity of God will deepen our love and our praise to God for the greatness of His grace to us. When we see and we consider the faithlessness of Israel, the way in which they rejected God, God's judgment against them because of it, and when we consider that if God, by His grace, had not invaded our lives through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we would have remained just like Israel, equally worthy of condemnation. Man, that moves me to love and praise God all the more. For his great love, doesn't it you? By God's grace, I'm a recipient of his kindness and I bless his name. And except I see the greatness of God's severity and the greatness of his wrath and judgment, I can never apprehend the the depth and the breadth of his love expressed in his kindness towards me. And then the last thing is this. Considering... The kindness and the severity of God will keep us from a popular error that is exceedingly prevalent in modern Christendom. And it goes something like this. God unconditionally accepts me just as I am. You ever heard that? You ever heard that? God unconditionally accepts me just as I am. Does he? Does he? Did did God accept unbelieving Israel unconditionally just as they were? Beloved, God cannot and he will not accept anyone who is unrighteous. God accepts only those who are perfectly righteous in his sight. God accepts those, only those, 
who are justified and made righteous through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. God accepts men only on the basis of repentance and faith in Christ. In Christ, justice satisfying life and death and resurrection. Sin's got to be judged. God doesn't just accept everyone as they are. If I refuse to trust Christ and the salvation that He's offered in His Son, or if I refuse to trust God and the salvation that He's offered in His Son, I don't have acceptance with Him. The righteous God can't accept sinners. He accepts us in Christ and in His righteousness and in, and in Christ in His righteousness alone. He accepts me not just as I am. He accepts me just as Christ is. And as I stand in Him through faith. God sets the condition for His acceptance of men. And it's repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And that exceeding kindness, that's exceeding kindness. And apart from that, God cannot and He will not save anyone. Apart from faith in Christ, all that is left for anyone is the severity of God. That's it. It's all of God's grace, salvation is. And so there's no room for boasting in any of us. And praise God, God is still active in His grace in this world. In His kindness, He's yet opening hearts and opening eyes and opening ears, even of the least expected. And that's what the point of what Paul says here in verses 24 23 and 24. Look at what he says. He says, and even they, talking about the ethnic Israelites that didn't believe. Even if they, the unbelieving Jews, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? In other words... If God has saved Gentiles, right? So that those who were not a people became a people. And they were grafted into an olive tree that has its root in Abraham, a Jew. How much easier do you think it's going to be for God to regraft those of his ancient people who trust in Jesus Christ back into the people of God? It's not hard. His argument is, look, Gentile Christians, if God can do this amazing and remarkable thing and bring you into the kingdom, don't you think... Do not think that it is beyond God to bring his own ancient people back into his own kingdom. And looking at the nation of Israel, most of the, of the Gentile Christians in Rome would have thought it to be an impossibility. But you know what? Nothing is too hard for God, right? No heart is too hard for God. And that's the point here. God will change hearts. Even these elect Jews whom he's making jealous through the salvation of the Gentiles. Then he'll save those who are elect in the nation of Israel. He's going to do it. Because God's a God of grace, a God who keeps his promises. He's sovereign over the plan of redemption. And therefore, they're going to believe and they're going to be saved. So let me just give you a few closing thoughts as we leave this text this morning. I've already done a good deal of application here. But, but let me just say a few things in closing. First of all, church, when we look at this text, there ought to be a great deal of humility in our hearts. As we see the sovereignty of God at work in salvation, shouldn't there? May God in His grace, listen now, has chosen, if you're saved, to give you eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to believe. He has chosen in His grace to fashion in you the faith by which you lay hold 
of the Lord Jesus Christ, and through which you receive the blessings of salvation, the sealing of the Spirit of God, the adoption of the family of God, right? He has, in His amazing grace, worked wonders in our lives, and we ought to be deeply grateful. But we have no reason for spiritual pride, none at all. No no place, no reason for arrogance toward others who are yet in their sin or or no place for self-righteousness, but we've got every reason to be humble and grateful and to be in awe and wonder at the Lord's grace to us and to honor Him with godly fear and reverence. What we need more than anything else, what would help our walk with Christ tremendously is a hefty dose of humility. Second, While we confess that saving faith is the gift of God, beloved, it needs to be nourished and strengthened, right? So let's hear this warning from Paul this morning. And let's hear it as those who are in Christ. Let's examine ourselves. Let it have its good work in us so that our faith would be real and vital and not trivial. And not only for the good of our souls, but... You know what? For the good of other people as we stand firm in faith. Listen, let our love, right? Rooted in faith, let our love and our obedience, our faithfulness, our joy, our perseverance under trials and persecutions, our steadiness and steadfastness, let that be a means of both exhorting and encouraging our brothers and sisters in Christ to a stronger and a deeper faith in Jesus. But also let it be a means of provoking jealousy among those who don't know Christ. Among those who are yet lost. So that they might ask us for the reason for the hope that's in us. Thereby opening the way for us to testify to the Lord Jesus Christ. So that they may come to repentance and faith. We've been in the men's Bible study, you know, we're studying the, 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 the tulip doctrines. It's a series of sermons by, by Charles Spurgeon. And the one, the, the sermon that we're studying right now, there's a part in there where he talks about the importance of there being a real difference in our conversation. In, 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 in his terms, conversation, your lifestyle. Like it ought to be evident Faith in Christ ought to be evident in the way that we live. And a depressed countenance. In a woe is me. In a back and forth tossing to and fro by everything. That gives no encouragement to anyone. Nobody looks at that and says, I would like to have that. They already have that in abundance. It is Christians who are empowered by the Spirit of God and a faith that's unshakable, that stand fast in the midst of all those things with joy and love and gratitude and resiliency that make people see there's something different about that guy. And when Paul says, you know, that we're to be ready to give, you know, an answer to anyone that asks the reason for the hope that is in us, the anticipation is there's going to be actually people who because of your steadfast faith in Christ really do ask the reason for the hope that is in you. And if nobody ever seems to ask you, 
Maybe you need to ask yourself why. Then last, for those in this room that are not trusting in Christ for salvation, I'm imploring you to consider the kindness and the severity of God. Listen, God is a God of immense kindness, right? He's a God of immense kindness and grace. And He delights to forgive the sinner who repents and believes in Christ as Savior and Lord. But I'm telling you, He is also a God of severity and judgment for those who remain in their rebellion and sin. Now, I want to ask you, if you are not in Christ this morning, if you know you're not a believer in Jesus, I want to ask you a question. And I want you to answer this honestly in your own heart. What exactly are you gaining in refusing Christ? What are you getting that's such a good thing? What, what is, what, 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 why will you have a hardened heart towards God? What do you think that will accomplish except your everlasting destruction? Note the kindness and the severity of God. And the greatest place to behold both God's kindness and His severity is at the cross. Isn't it? There the severity of God's righteous judgment did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up to the wrath of God for the sake of all who will repent and believe in Christ. And there also the kindness of His tender love was put on display. Because it's through the cross that God forgives for Christ's sake all the sins of those who believe in Him and adopts them into the family of God and grafts them by grace into His beloved people. Listen, here's your choice. Here's the choice that's before you. It's either going to be God's severity against you for your sins or it will be God's severity upon Christ for your sins so that you receive God's kindness. It's one or the other. Appeal to you. Turn to Christ. Humble yourself. Repent of your sins. Believe in Christ as Savior and surrender your life to Him as Lord. Humble yourself and receive the kindness of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, there's much in this text. And that's why we trust in Your sovereign wisdom and the working of the Holy Spirit to apply to every heart exactly what needs to be heard. And so I pray, Father in heaven, that during this time of response, you would turn the hearts of every single person in this congregation to you. And that we would think seriously about what we've heard this morning. And that we would be compelled to respond by your Holy Spirit in the proper and the appropriate way that pleases and glorifies you. So search our hearts and apply this word to them. And Lord God, bring forth real fruit in our lives. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.